Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. On the line with me is Dr. Lauren. Good morning, madam. Good morning. Great, great to see you. Great to have you uh, remotely on the show. Um, yeah. And I, I mean that in a physical distancing sense. And uh, Dr. Crystal, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Live from lockdown. Uh, live from lockdown, indeed. And I think uh, one of those pesky doctors asked a question right before they went off air of whether or not we should only be voting for politicians that have science degrees. And I'm thinking... Who would be left to vote for? Not me. I think we have a bit. Of, let's let's call that the fifteen-year uh, plan, shall we? We'll get more uh, more people from science into into political positions. But uh, you have to say, not all scientists are good at all things. So let's uh, temper that. I think I'd be far happier with more people having science knowledge and not necessarily being scientists. That would be a good start. So let's let's go with that instead. Um, I certainly. Don't want some of the scientists I know running um, some aspects of of the country, but other aspects, boy, do they give good information that should be listened to. Anyway, uh, we've got a huge show uh, coming up. We're going to be talking about a new new type of star later in the show with one of our guests from ANU, which is going to be exciting. And then we have the person who put together the film Cracking COVID, which some of you may have seen during the week, which was pretty spectacular. Uh, Sonia is going to be on the show later, and we're going to we're going to get behind all the details and you know how they how you go about making a film during a pandemic. I don't know how they do that, but uh, anyway, it's, it's a cracker. As I said, that cracking COVID to cracker. Anyway, all good. Uh, but let's let's jump into some news, Dr. Lauren. What do you got for us? Uh, so I was reading a really interesting article this week about hurricanes over the Atlantic, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners will realise that last year was a particularly bad year for hurricanes over the Atlantic Ocean. So there were actually 30 named storms, and there's usually only 12. So almost three times the number of of you know storms that were at the size and severity that meant that they were a named hurricane. Um, So I must admit that I assumed that that meant that the frequency of hurricanes is increasing over time. And so I just assumed that this was what what was um, happening because of global warming. But a new study came out in Nature Communications this week that it's actually looked at data from the past 168 years, and they've found that there's actually no statistically significant increase in the number of hurricanes over that time. And what really appealed to me about this study, and then my immediate thought, which I think a lot of listeners will think as well, is how on earth do you compare data from today, where we have these amazing satellite systems and are constantly monitoring that area, to 168 years ago, where it was literally somebody writing in their diary. And so they were very clever about it. So they actually did some statistical modelling and worked out what they thought the error rate was from those initial, you know, observed reports from people back in the 1800s. And what they found is that over that that large time period, um, there really is no significant increase. However, that's not necessarily saying that global warming isn't changing the frequency of the storms because there's other things that influence the trend. 
And one of them in particular is that back in the um, the 1800s, there was a lot of soot and sulfate particles in the atmosphere, and that actually helped to block and scatter the sunlight, which was temporarily cooling the planet throughout that period. And so the authors actually talk about the fact that that might have actually suppressed hurricane activity in the Atlantic over that time. Mm. It's it's super interesting stuff because I remember when um, Dr. Ailey was in, she was explaining mm. to me once about uh, hurricanes and what sort of made them worse and what made them better. And and one of the things, of course, was you know the fuel for hurricanes being warmer oceans, which we know we're seeing. But the other was, that I, and I, I'm going to get this wrong, but I'll have a crack at it, but hurricanes can kind of be stripped out by high-speed winds at, um, at high altitudes. And some of those were changing in the other direction with regards to the changing climate. So one thing was driving more and one thing was reducing more. And it was sort of like, uh, that's why it's very hard to model where this was going to go. Yeah, definitely. And so definitely. it wasn't, you know, those, yeah, sorry, those early statements are, we'll just get more bigger giant hurricanes may actually not be the case. It might be something different from that that's, you know, it's very hard to model. And I think this is what's so fascinating because it's actually, you think it would be quite a straightforward thing to look at things like frequency mm. and severity, but it's really not. Um, one of the other things that's really interesting in this area is there's a, a um, area of science called paleotemperature. Tempestology, yeah, Whoa. try and say that fast. <laughs> but this is basically using ge uh, geological records to look at hurricane frequency and severity. And what they actually do is there's these deep underwater caverns that are called blue holes. And as hurricanes pass over islands, they actually pick up sand and dump them into the caverns. And so yeah. this group of scientists can actually look in these deep holes and looking at the sediment deposits, they can work out how many hurricanes happened over that long time frame. So we're now talking over the last thousand years. Yep. So it's it's it is very interesting. So that evidence also suggests that there are peaks and troughs in terms of frequency of storms. But there's no real trend. However, the um, authors in the paper do talk about the fact that even though the frequency might not be statistically changing the severity definitely seems to be. Mm. And it's it's linked into what you were talking about before, Shane, that um, these warm ocean temperatures actually can cause the hurricanes to become supercharged and become very destructive in a very quick time frame. Yeah. I mean, the other thing uh, adding to that, of course, is that with a slightly higher sea level, the storm surges for many coastal areas are far more problematic. You, you don't have to add much in height for, you know, that 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 bit of ocean to get you know, a long way inland in, in many areas where they're fairly low-lying. So, I mean, we saw that in New Orleans a few years back, but in other Definitely. areas as well. So, yeah, a really, a really big problem. Yeah, for sure. And look, some of, some of the stats were just blowing my mind reading into this area. So, because I'd heard the term supercharged storms before, mm. but didn't really understand. But um, so what that actually talks about is the intensification of the storm over quite a short period. And so the definition is that the wind speeds increase by 55 kilometres per hour within a, a, a day. And when you actually think about that, that's insane that mm. the wind speeds can ramp up that quickly and it makes them really unpredictable and really hard to you know, protect people from. So yeah. 
Yep. Yeah, something, something you know, another another example of what we are doing to our planet. Yeah, indeed. And even us in Melbourne who have very rapid changes in weather can appreciate uh, changes in winds. Yeah. <laughs> you weather a few, but, but, you know, it's okay when it's ramping up to 100 kilometres per hour, but where you're already sitting at 150 and it ramps up beyond that, yes. that that's when things get really, yeah, really scary. So thank you, Dr. That Lauren. Uh, Dr. Crystal, are you, you're there. I can see you. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Dr. Shane. Look, um, I read a story during the week which really reminded me about one of the things that's um, gotten me through lockdown and, and, and many others, which is the beauty in nature and the real um, wonder of, of, of the beauty that we see in the natural world. Um, I don't know about you, uh, Dr. Shane and Dr. Lauren, but being out in nature has been something that's been incredibly helpful for us mm, at this time. Absolutely. And um, and one of the things that you see, that we see in nature, which is just so beautiful, is fractal patterns. Those those repeating patterns that get sort of smaller and smaller and seem to repeat forever, like fractal patterns in branches, like when a branch branches and then branches and then branches, or in a snowflake. And you just see these gorgeous patterns in nature. And there was a story this week that was published in the international journal Science that was looking at the biological mechanism of fractals in the Romanesco cauliflower. <laughs> yep. Do you, can you picture one of those? It's that sort of green cauliflower. It's got the sort of the repeating cone, cone shapes, like conical sort of spheroids. Have you ever seen those at the farmer's market or at the supermarket? Yep, yep. They, are, they are very beautiful. And, and they're kind of bizarre. You look at it and think, well, well, how has nature done this? And that's the exact question that a couple of French researchers asked themselves about, you know, 12 years ago. They thought, oh, maybe we could look into this. How long would it take? We could be able to answer this. It took actually quite a while. And it was a conversation that was struck up, and I love this because it's a really curiosity-driven collaboration between a researcher who specialised in sort of mathematical and computer modelling and a plant molecular biologist who sort of came together and said, well, surely between the two of us, we could work this out. Hmm. And one of the things that's really fascinating, and, and this is about sort of the genetics of the Brassica family. Now, I wish we had Cam from Eat It on because he could tell us a bit more about the Brassica family. But when I say Brassicas, what comes to mind, Dr. Shane? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm hopeless with plants. Plants aren't my thing. <laughs> well, Lauren, help me out. I think broccoli's part of it, isn't it? Yeah, so you've got broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kale and kohlrabi. They're all part okay. of this brassica family. But one thing that didn't occur to me was that this actually isn't a family. It's just one species. And a little bit like dogs are one species, but you get different mm. breeds, brassicas are one species and then you can select for that wide range of features like if you select for leaves, you get kale. If you select for buds, you get cabbage. If you select for stems, you get kohlrabi. And if you select for flower clusters, you get cauliflowers. But they're all the same species. Yeah. And so there's this incredibly complex network of genes underlying these pathways to get these different um, breeds, to get these different features. And so the mathematical modelling that was done was sort of tweaking those genetic networks to sort of say, well, if the plant grows and stops and, and turns into, you know, select for buds here and leaves there, can we get it to, in the computer at least, create a fractal pattern by turning on and off these gene networks? And so they did that. So in the computer, they started tweaking the way the genes interact 
to sort of select for the qualities that would give you a fractal pattern that creates the Romanesco cauliflower. And so they found out that what they needed to do was create a genetic loop where when some, uh, where cells that are growing in the plant, they sort of go through the process of becoming a flower but don't quite get there, and then they become a shoot. And then that shoot creates more shoots, and that shoot creates more shoots, and it kind of creates this genetic loop, like a chain reaction, where the cells in the plant, when they're trying to grow, just keep budding off and making more shoots and more shoots upon more shoots, and it creates this this um, model of a fractal pattern. And so they made it work in the computer, and then they thought, okay, how can we demonstrate this in real life? So they got a plant um, that's kind of like a model plant that they use in plant labs all the time. It's called Arabidopsis, and it's a it's a plant that that scientists know how to kind of genetically um, manipulate and tweak in the lab. So they they sort of put these genes, this gene program into the Arabidopsis, into the plant model. And sure enough, when they grew it, lo and behold, it grew these little conical shapes that looked just like Romanesco cauliflower. And so, and so they kind of spent all this, they spent 12 years, you know, I think maybe this was like a little side project for them, um, that to, to demonstrate some of the biological, mathematical and molecular mechanisms that all come together to create these beautiful fractal patterns. Yeah, look, it's super cool stuff. I think fractals are super interesting because you see them in so many places in nature as well. And I think um, I know my son accidentally broke off a small piece of one of our ferns recently and he was a bit devastated but said, oh, this is great. You know, we can learn about fractals. And he didn't know what I was talking about. He's eight years old. So, you know, but then for the rest of the day, I think he was drawing fractal patterns on a piece of paper after we'd learned what they were. So they're, they're super cool and they're super interesting and they're everywhere in nature from, you know, snail shells to ferns to broccoli to to whatever else um so they're good thank you so much dr crystal it's really interesting and i i do feel for those those poor poor team modeling for 12 years to to get that out but i think it's um it's fascinating to see that they managed to replicate it so perfectly really cool thank you it's a beautiful science and i hope that um, maybe the team from eat it can share their favorite um romanesco cauliflower recipes with us yeah well normally cam's wandering around at this time i haven't seen him yet today yeah. i don't know where he is um he'll be he'll be in yeah he'll be he'll be in somewhere he's probably just picking up some some food from from uh, our local areas Dr. Lauren, Dr. Crystal, thanks so much for the news segment. Uh, I'm going to run off and uh, we'll see you again soon. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. On the line with us now from the Australian National University is Dr. David Young. Good morning, David. How are you going up there in COVID-free Canberra? I'm good, thanks, Shane. How are you? I'm good. Uh, thanks for coming on the line to talk about this uh, work you guys have been doing up there. It's super interesting. Now, you well, before we get into the, the real big part, which is this new um, type of star and so forth we've been, you know, you've been working on, give us a bit of a rundown first. I, I think most people have heard some of this, but how are all our elements made at various times? Like, you know, I've got all sorts of stuff in my body. Where did all that come from and over what period of time did, did all that get produced? Yep, that's a great question, Shane. Um, so basically, the Big Bang is how our universe formed, and the Big Bang produced hydrogen, helium, and a small amount of lithium. Okay. And every other element in the periodic table was produced by stars. So as Carl Sagan once said, you and I and everybody on the Earth is made of stardust. Mm-hmm. And and sort of over what period did that happen? Like, was that early on in the in the Big bang or and was it a particular type of star that made particular types of stuff what do we know 
Well, the elements have been produced by stars over the entire course of the history of the universe. Um, I guess the more stars we have, the more elements are produced. And right now there are more stars in the universe than there were, say, 13 billion years ago. So to some extent, the elements are being, have been made in larger quantities as time has progressed. Um, regarding the other part of your question, yes, certain types of elements are produced in different stars. So um, things like calcium and titanium are produced in very massive stars. Mm -hmm. Elements like oxygen and carbon can also be produced in much lower mass stars. Okay. And so what? So take our, our sun, for example. What, what kind of materials, I suppose two parts to the question, what kind of materials did it start with and then what kind of materials is it producing? So our star right now is... Was, um, pretty much has every element in the periodic table in it. It's a relatively young star. Mm -hmm. And right now it's really not doing anything interesting whatsoever. It's simply burning hydrogen into helium in its core as of now. And that's what okay. makes it shine. Yep. So as of, as of now, our star's um, sort of a garden variety, rather boring star that's doing very little in terms of nuclear reactions in its interior other than turning hydrogen into helium. Okay. And so the expectation, though, over time, though, is that our star will go through some cataclysmic change in the long distant future and do more interesting stuff chemically. Yes, that's right. At some point in the future, maybe five billion years or so from now, it's going to become enormous. It'll probably swallow the Earth. And at some later stage, it's going to do some interesting um, nuclear reactions within the star and produce other sorts of elements. And in terms of the sort of the Milky Way as a you know our, our galaxy, so you know our, our star, the Sun, is sitting within that galaxy. How how common is our star? Does you know does most of the Milky Way sort of consist of stars like ours, or is there a huge variation in the types of stars we see? Oh, that's a great question. Um, in terms of the sizes of stars, um, our Sun is sort of pretty average. Mm -hmm. There are, I guess, the more massive. The more massive stars are rare and the lower mass stars are more common. And in terms of the overall iron content, uh, our star, our sun is sort of a representative star of the disk of our galaxy. Mm -hmm. And you've been looking at, or you've found a particularly rare star within the Milky Way. Tell, tell us about that. What's, what's unusual about this star you've located? Yep, so our team have been engaged in a long-standing effort using the SkyMapper telescope to find the oldest stars in our galaxy. Now, sadly, measuring the ages of stars is actually notoriously difficult. And so we rely upon using iron as a proxy for the age of a star. So we found a star that has about 3,000 times the lower iron content compared to the sun. Okay. And that makes it uh, incredibly rare. Not the rarest star known, but you know, sort of one in a million. And in that star, we also found very high um, relative amounts of the element nitrogen, the element zinc, and heavy elements such as uranium and something called europium, and probably gold. We weren't able to measure gold, but if we had to guess, the star would have had a lot of gold in it. And so in that sense, the combination of being very, very iron poor and having lots of uranium makes it really one in a million. Hmm. And does that mean that that star was there long before many of the other stars were generated in the Milky Way? I mean, was it just hanging around by itself before we kind of had a galaxy per se? I mean, what, what's the story there? 
We think it formed very early in the galaxy. Again, we have no direct measure on the age, but we can rely upon uh, models of our galaxy. So my co-author and collaborator, Chiaki Kobayashi at the University of Hertfordshire, she has a model of the evolution of our galaxy. And in that model, a star like the one we discovered probably formed about one billion years after the Big Bang. So mm -hmm. it's sort of been just sitting around, as you said, in our galaxy or our proto-galaxy for the last 12 billion years or so. Yeah. Now, some of these materials that are, that are in this star, I, I understand, and co correct me if I'm making the incorrect correct connection here, but you've, you've sort of um, postulated this idea of um, some sort of very large cataclysmic event in order to produce some of these heavier materials that we we've kind of struggled to work out where they came from over time because many of the many of the normal sort of things that we talk about some of the stars exploding and so forth don't quite produce those so which which materials are we sort of have we struggled to nail down in terms of where they're produced yeah so the, the heavy elements things heavier than zinc in our periodic periodic tables so things like gold and uranium mm -hmm. These are known as uh, heavy neutron capture elements made through a rapid process. And the site, the exact place where those elements have been produced over the history of our universe was basically a mystery until about a few years ago mm. when we discovered that the mergence of neutron stars was definitely one source of those elements, such as gold. But again, returning to these models, those models are unable to predict the total amount of metals that we see in something like our sun using just the mergers of neutron stars. And so that indicates that there's probably another site or another type of star that can produce those elements. And until our work, we didn't really have any um, direct or indirect evidence for what that other source could be. Right. And so now we're talking about a different type of star that essentially, and I think you use the term, turns into a hypernova at some stage. I love it when we yeah. bring in these new big, you know, it's like the very, very large telescope. Um, we had novas there. We had novas. We had supernovas. Now we have a, a hypernova is bigger again. How much bigger is a hypernova than a supernova? It's not the size that counts you, Shane. It's the explosion energy. Right. So when a supernova explodes, it explodes with a lot of energy. And a hypernova explodes with 10 times as much energy as a supernova. So we've known about hypernova for quite some time, but we haven't known about this particular class of hypernova that we talk about in this paper. Right, and that's these magnetorotational hypernovas, yes? Yeah? So these are, what's the difference um, between them and the existing hypernovas, so the ones that we've been talking about? It's, um, it's the rotation and the magnetic field. So this particular object that we think produced the elements in the star we see was rotating very, very rapidly. Uh, extremely rapidly and our evidence for that rotation is the element nitrogen so we found lots of nitrogen in our star and again models of stars in the early universe could only produce these high amounts of nitrogen if the star is spinning extremely rapidly mm. um, zinc is our um, is the signature or the telltale sign that the star that produced the elements again that we see had a very very high explosion energy so we saw lots of zinc, and that tells us that this object must have been uh, a hypernova. So now we've got some rapidly spinning hypernova, and because the iron content in the star we see is so low, we basically assume that only a single star could have produced the elements we see in this object we in this object we discovered. Yeah, very cool. This, this, this the neutron star merger alternative that sort of. Um, we run into time constraints there because you have to produce the two massive stars that produce the two neutrons 
then we have to wait around for those two neutrons to spiral in and merge into each other. And that all takes um, a certain amount of time. And if we look at the models, um, the likelihood that that happens in the time it takes to produce the iron content in the star we see is very, very rare. So we're looking for all of these elements to be produced in a single event. And that single event is most likely this magneto-rotational hypernova, which is a bit of a tongue twister. Yeah, indeed. Now, uh, just before you go, later this year, hopefully, and I do cross my fingers here and say, hopefully, the new James Webb telescope will be launched. Um, now, there's been a few <laughs> few delays, unfortunately, over recent years, and I think we, we keep hoping that, that it'll happen this year. But uh, one of the things about you know bigger and, and badder telescopes is that they allow us to look further back in time, and the web will really give us an incredible view back towards the start of the Big Bang. I mean, what does this mean for this sort of work? Will that give further insights into where some of this stuff came from, and you know maybe maybe look for some of these examples of these um, early you know early sort of explosions that, that created some of these materials that we're now seeing in these old stars? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The James Webb, tel James Webb Telescope will enable us to peer back right to the very start of the universe. And fingers crossed it gets launched and fingers crossed we might actually be able to see um, one of these magneto-rotational hypernova. They're very, very rare, but if you stare long enough and hard enough and wait enough time, perhaps you might get lucky and observe one of these things directly. Yep. That'd be pretty cool, I think. Sounds fantastic. Well, let's hope that happens. We we used to talk about gravitational wave events in the same way, and now they're popping up all over the place. So you never know. Maybe we'll um we'll get lucky, and it'll be similar with these these new new sorts of um hypernova as well. David, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck on uh, the continued work, and stay safe up there in Canberra. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, David. Folks, that was Dr. David Young from the Australian National University talking about some really cool new astronomy stuff that's going on. We're going to take a break for some music, and when we'll be back in uh, just a few minutes, we will be talking to Sonia Pemberton about uh, the film Cracking COVID, which some of you may have seen uh, on the ABC already. It is now on iView. We're going to get behind the scenes there and, and work out how a person can make a movie during a pandemic. It'll be a good discussion. Back in a moment. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple R, And on the line with me now is the great Sonia Pemberton, the creative director from Gene Pool Productions and the person who brought us cracking COVID. Good morning, Sonia. Hello, Dr. Shane. It is... I'm very honoured to be here. Oh, look, it is my honour to be uh, chatting to you, actually, after the success of uh, this film, Cracking COVID. Now, I think, um, first of all, let's just, um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, just give us a quick overview of what it's about. Sure. Well, basically, it's an inside view of behind the scenes of, of Australia's scientific response to the pandemic. And it's uh, featuring our wonderful, legendary Nobel laureate, Professor Peter Doherty, who won uh, the Nobel Prize in 1996 for a very key discovery he made in immunity to do with um, how T-cells function. He co-won uh, the Nobel that year. And uh, basically it tracks uh, Melbourne's journey through our long, the big lockdown last year. Um, it really covers 15, 16 months of the pandemic and but focuses on what we've learned scientifically. And I think that's one of the things that many people don't realise is how many firsts we mm. have in Australia. Yeah, that's the thing that blew me away. You know, we were the first people uh, in the world to launch the genome, to release it to the world with um, Eddie Holmes up in Sydney. 
Um, we were the first to actually grow the virus in a lab outside of China, the first to see the virus and to have images of the virus and share them with the world. Um, we shared the viral samples that we grew here in Melbourne with labs throughout the, the, the planet, really. And mm. then a lot of the research was um, done on those samples. We were the first to map the immune response. And then we were the first to look at comparing the children's immune response with adults' immune response. So I think all of that is kind of worth celebrating. And I find that because we've all been immersed in the day-to-day -day numbers and the press conferences and all of that, that maybe we don't get a chance to pull back and kind of look at the wide view of what's been going on for us in Australia in the last 14 or so months. And I guess that's what I set out to try and do. I didn't end up doing it the way I meant to do it, the way I would normally make a science film, but that's another story. Yeah, I think it's, well, that was one of the things that's interesting because I remember you you made a, a film that I suspect many people have heard of. I, I think you did well in the Emmys back in the day called Jabbed. Um, it's interesting now fast-forwarding from so many years ago, I remember doing talking about it on the show and, and talking about vaccinations for many years on the show. And I've had many people on the show even before COVID because we, we could tell that the issues around vaccinations were starting to creep up. And as I've often said, if, if scientists and science communicators leave a big gap... Um, then these anti-vaxxers and so forth can readily drive a truck in there. And we, we started forgetting about the value of, of what we'd created and what we were doing. And, and then there was this gap. And, I mean, you, you, made, you made Jabbed, I, I suspect, partly to address that. Yeah, yeah. Jabbed is now seven, nearly eight years old, mm. so it doesn't obviously include anything to do with COVID. Um, and we made another one uh, called uh, Vaccines Calling the Shots for PBS Nova, um, but the jab film went everywhere in the world. I think 25 million people have seen it now, which is great. And it got broken up into all sorts of clips, and we got tens of millions of views for the little animations that we mm. did about um, how antibodies work and how T cells work and, and um, how the immune system fights and how it gets primed by the virus, a uh, vaccine rather. So, um, yeah, I'm really, really interested and concerned and focused on vaccine hesitancy. Um, I guess the radical thing about jab was it said... Its key message was, and this was radical at the time, it's okay to be afraid. Mm. Right? Yep. That's what a lot of us people who are pro-science and really, you know, very comfortable with vaccination don't get, that the fear around vaccination, the hesitancy around vaccination, that's not a crime. It's kind of understandable. Yep. You're getting a foreign old thing shoved in your body and then all into your children's bodies, you know. That's scary. But once you get informed and knowledgeable and work out what the risk-benefit kind of ratio is um, and you think about what you gain from this vaccine, not just as an individual but as part of a community and part of the world, then it seems pretty clear to most of us that this is a better option. Not the perfect option, but a better option. So that film went out um, eight years ago around the world and did its bit and changed a little bit of the vernacular mm. Say, particularly in America, you know, the idea of saying it's okay to be afraid, but it's what you do with that fear that matters. Um, that that got reported in the Huffington Post and the New York yep. Times, and now it's considered sort of okay to acknowledge fear. You, you're not the pariah anymore if you just talk about hesitancy, and that's very important to me. Yep. And this long cracking COVID kind of picked up. And reapplied that thinking, if you like, to the COVID story and the hesitancy around vaccination, which is, sure, you know, are they perfect? No. Um, do they have side effects? Yes. Are some of those side effects worrying? Yes. 
But overall, they stop you dying. Mm. Um, they stop you getting severely ill. They stop your mum, your dad, your grandpa, your grandpa dying. And with this current, you know, strain of Delta, they possibly stop your children dying. I mean, that's going to be the new thing. Yep. The new wave we're seeing is now hitting the young. So this is a completely different story. In the yep. last, what, three weeks, you yep. know, our film doesn't go into Delta. But, wow, what a change. Yeah, indeed. And it's it's really interesting when you talk about that because I remember that story coming through from, from the earlier film, Jabbed, and I, I've always sort of put – put into three sort of categories. There's the group of people who will just get this, you know, they're, they're, they're mindful of the risks. They, you know, they know a fair bit. They're happy to, you know, just follow medical advice. And I think that's, I don't know, that I don't remember the numbers offhand, but it's somewhere between 30 and sort of 45% of people who just go and get vaccinated. Um, then there's a, there's a big chunk in the middle that are the ones that you're talking about, the ones that, you know, and to be fair to them, have been fed the shittest sandwich of communication with regards to vaccine safety over the last year you could possibly imagine, and frankly, are rightfully concerned or confused. And anyone who judges them for having that that fear or confusion, frankly, is is just displaying a bit of ignorance as to the complexity of the communication scenario we're, we're in. And then, of course, there's that last little wedge of people who want to actively discourage everyone else from getting vaccinated, um, potentially, I don't know, they're to a make, minority. yeah, they're a they're minority, minority, and and they're a loud minority, and they're a damaging minority, and I think most of it's just to make themselves feel better about their own decisions. You know, if more people make the same decisions, it's a little easier to live with the fact that you you know you are doing something that's from the 15th century, but you know that's a very small group, but that big group in the middle that have very legitimate concerns and have questions. You know, I, I encounter that group all the time. You know, my parents are in that group. Some of my friends have, have been in that group. A lot of scientists I know, which is something that people often don't recognise, are also in that group. You know, not, not everyone's a virologist. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that I wanted to tackle. For example, one of the concerns is it's all been rushed. And mm. what we show in the film is it's not that it's the key bits of studying the vaccine and its effect on the human body have been rushed. It's that the funding wasn't required, so then drop yep. four or five years out of the timeline. And then the manufacturing and everything was collapsed. It was concertinaed to be done um, consecutively rather, uh, sorry, parallel mm, rather than parallel. Yep. Um, and so what you saw was a timeline that could go across 10, 12, 15 years to develop a vaccine, shrunk down to 18 months or so. That wasn't because we cut corners on the phase one clinical trials or the phase two, three clinical trials, what we cut corners on was the funding exercise they have to go mm. through, the two, three years of funding applications. We all know what funding, you know, is like. It's like it's crap. Um, and you have to spend half your time just putting in your application. So all of that went because everyone saw the urgency. And then they sped up the um, manufacturing. In fact, here in Australia, um, CSL did a remarkable thing. They decided to start manufacturing the UQ, the University of Queensland's vaccine, before it had even finished phase one trial. Mm. Now, that was a gamble they took, and we cover that in the film, and it was a gamble that didn't pay off. But, my goodness, it's the right sort of gamble because they're saying, look, if this works, we're ready to go now. Yep. You don't have to wait two years for manufacturing to gear up. Yep. And that's the thing I think I, people might really benefit from hearing if they're a bit nervous about the speeding up the time frame. Um, and what I felt really strongly as following the science is the scientists, like all of us, are really concerned about this virus. 
and about this disease, and they want to help um, end this pandemic as fast as possible. So there's some people working on understanding how the vaccines work. There's some people working on understanding how our immune systems react to the virus and to the vaccines. There's other people studying um, public health and the pattern of spread, you know, what you can do to stop that. You know, there's this wall of intelligent human beings out there just standing there trying to block the virus from all of us. And um, I think it's worth having a look at what they're doing and, and also having a look at what it costs them. Because I think, as you know, it's a very personal documentary. Mm. Um, and a lot of the scientists themselves um, talk very personally about what they love and what they fear and their disappointment. And I think that's really important because they're humans too. They're yeah. people yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think uh, one of the things I, I loved uh, that you sort of captured there was the—I wouldn't say necessarily the, the, the desperation, but the, the the feeling of such responsibility that is on the shoulders of many of yeah. these individuals. And you could see the—you know—I'm I mean, not sure how you captured some of this video, but you know, you could see some of the glee in them when something worked well, like when those numbers were first coming in with the the UQ version of the vaccine, they looked so spectacular. And, you know, you could see that excitement, um, that incredible excitement of it being better than they expected. And then to, yeah. then to also see that crushed um, not long after. It's just um, you know, in incredible to capture that, that emotion because it's, as you say, it's, it's career-making, career-ending. It's all of the yeah. above for these scientists. And I think and I hope that, that it helps give people trust in the human beings behind all the science, you know. As I said, you know, we get bombarded with news stories and, and stats and numbers, and I think it helps to step back and just go, look what we've learned over the last year, you know, mm. look what we've uncovered. We are in such a better position than we were 12 months ago. Of course, if people don't get vaccinated or we don't have access to the vaccines, which, of course, is the number one problem we're facing, yep. Um, yep. Then, then this is going to make it very difficult. I mean, I feel really uncomfortable. Just this morning, I was talking to family in America and yesterday and family in the UK, and, you know, they're all coming out and about, as we've seen on the news, you know, mm. they're all going back to this new normal, um, revised normal, as I think of it, um, and they cannot believe where we're at. It's actually quite embarrassing, mm. you know. Mm. They, they actually thought you were doing so well, what went wrong? And I think it's a combination of obviously the um, lack of access to vaccines, but also, as you say, the remarkably kind of lackluster communication campaign yep. that these vaccines work. They stop you dying and they stop you getting really sick. Surely when you have a global pandemic that's killed over 4 million people, really 4 million people, surely, surely this is enough for now. We'll have something better in 12 months and 12 months after that, yeah. 12 months after that. But right now, I don't want my dad dying, thank you very much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And look, this is, I mean, it's its incredible to me. I mean, we're seeing the, the numbers for vaccination in Australia and well, I think single doses sitting somewhere just above 20% now in New Zealand, it's even lower. You know, they're, they're only about 60% of us and they are sitting ducks, yeah. to be frank, with regards to this new variant. And I, and I understand they've got zero cases and as we were just a few weeks back, you know, but that is, that is a, a desperate situation that needs to be addressed. But we have had a you know, it's sad that we've had a scenario here where we've got a locally produced vaccine that, you know, is made in Melbourne, that is safe, that's used all over the world, but through a 
you know, a range of different communication sort of debacles, if you will, through the mainstream media, through Atagi, through other groups. Um, people are petrified of this vaccine now. Can I say one thing that I think is not cutting across, and that mm. is with the AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, Sharon Doherty, uh, uh, sorry, Sharon Lewin from the Doherty Institute said maybe eight, nine weeks ago now, she said a few months ago, we did not know what to do for these rare side effects mm. from the AstraZeneca with the blood clots, yep. with unusual blood clots. And again, they're really unusual. You're around about one in 50,000, depending on what age group you're in. And she said, but the difference is why we've had so few deaths in Australia is we know what to do. If you have that vaccine, to anybody listening, if you go and have that AstraZeneca vaccine, no matter what age group you are, and you're worried about those um, rare but real serious blood clots, you've got to watch out for a severe headache or a severe gut pain. Mm. That is not alleviated by your normal Panadol and Nurofen, whatever it is you want to take. If you get that, you go to your doctor or you even go to emergency and say, I had AstraZeneca two weeks ago. Can you please check what's going on? They did, I had this, to be really honest, I had this, right? I had the t terrible tummy ache thing after AstraZeneca and I thought, oh, it's probably just a tummy ache. Then I thought, hang on, I know the problem. Yeah, I know the warning signs. So I rang my GP and she said, come in. And they did a blood test, and within two hours they said, nope, your platelets are normal, everything's normal, you've just got a normal tummy ache, you've eaten something. You know, it's, but I did have a bit too much knowledge, you know. Yeah. But the, the point is the vast majority of people who've had these side effects go home within a couple of days. Yeah, yeah. That's not being reported. No, it's not. Yeah. When, when we had 28 cases, we've got more now, when we had 28 cases of the, of the um, um, side effect of blood clots, 26 of them had gone home within three days mm. had no, and had no, that we know of, residual effects. And you go, why aren't we telling that story, you know? Yeah. There have been a couple of deaths now and they're tragic, but they seem to be comorbidities or leaving those symptoms too long. Absolutely. And I think that's that's a huge part of it, understanding that we do we do have a better feeling for what's going on now and we know how to treat it. The other the other point that I, I wish the media would would push more is that and, and I keep saying it in a slightly different way, but I say it is impossible to insure your house once it's on fire. And this is the analogy I always use because vaccines take time. The doses are separated by a certain you know, number of weeks for specific reasons. And just because we get the crap frightened out of us today because of numbers in Melbourne or Sydney doesn't mean we can just get a vaccine tomorrow and be fine. Um, they're insurance against the future, not against the present. And unless we get that part right, we, you know, we, we really need to sell that message to a lot yeah. more people that even if we feel fine right now, um, so much can happen in our capital cities over the coming three months that we really need to be prepared for that. And the risk might be low today. Well, not the case in New South Wales at the moment, but the risk might be low today if you're living in Canberra, but it could be very different in a month's time. And in a month's time, you still won't have full coverage from your vaccine. So you've, you've got to get onto that early. I think also one of the things that I really wanted to do was show people what real COVID looks like and looks mm. like in Australia. So we have three cases in the film that we follow, yep. one with severe COVID, one with long COVID, and one with mild COVID. Now, I did that very, very deliberately so that you can see, yes, this family with mild COVID, sure, they were lucky. They had the two, three weeks of just, you know, mild cold and flu. They were terrified. They'd infect everybody else in their family. Um, and there was all sorts of concerns and some beautiful science comes out of that family. But I wanted to show severe COVID with Michael Vahalis and his family and show what happens when one person brings it into mm. a family 
group and a member of your family died. Mm. Just awful. And then you have, of course, the case of Mirabai, who is long COVID, and she's now up to 400 days and she, uh, since she was infected, and she still can't get out of bed for more than an hour or two a day. She's in her mid-30s. She was very healthy. Um, no, nothing that they knew was wrong with her. And that girl's life is really in trouble because she yeah. had COVID. Yeah. And she had mild COVID, but now she has long COVID. So I just wanted people to get a good look at it. So if you're worried about the vaccines, I think we really should be more worried about the disease. Absolutely. <laughs> it's it's easy to not worry about the disease when it's not wandering around the street in front of you. And I think that's one of the points that we forget here in Australia. And I, I know many people see it with friends and family they've got overseas, but, but many don't. So we're going to take a brief break for some station announcements. I'm happy to stick around for a few more minutes with me. Excellent. No Folks, uh, just some important announcements from Triple R, and we'll be back uh, talking to Sonia about the film Cracking Code, but again, in just a moment. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Yeah, welcome back, Triple R audience. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. I'm here speaking with Sonia Pemberton about the film she has put together, Cracking COVID. Now, Sonia, you're in the film, and uh, more disturbingly, some of my tweets are in the film. I think we had we had to talk about this, and I feel a bit shamed because it gives some indication of my inappropriate knowledge of Dan Murphy delivery times. But uh, <laughs> did you do this to me deliberately? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Jane, I decided that, you know, I needed to expose some people's frailties out there. Um, it's, I'm amazed you, you, you stopped the film to find it. There's a few secret little messages in the film. Actually, somebody this morning discovered the Brett Sutton gag that's in the film. So there's a few little things hidden for those that want to look. Very good. Yeah, look, um, it, it's funny, you know, because I, I'm, this is an Australian documentary and normally I make films for global audiences and, of course, the global audience will not get the Dan Murphy's tweet. Yeah. Um, so um, it was actually a bit of a relief to make a film just for a homegrown audience. Um, yeah. I mean to make the film. ABC called me and said, you know, back in March last year, we've got another film we're making called Carbon. Uh, Carbon, the unauthorised biography, is our next big one coming out, but um, on climate and stuff. But they called me to talk about that and they said, oh, I suppose you're following COVID-19. And I wasn't called that then. I suppose you're following the beginnings of the pandemic because it was before it was even declared a pandemic. And I went, of course I am. I've made 21 films about diseases. My nickname was the virus queen for about a decade. And so I've made so many films about this. Of course I was following it. And then they said, well, what would you do if you had a chance to make a film? And I said, I'd focus on immunity, I think, because no matter what happens with this virus and this disease, we're going to need to understand how we can be, become immune to it. And they said, how would you do it? And I said, if I had my absolute perfect way, I would I would do it through the lens of Peter Doherty, our Nobel laureate mm. here in Melbourne. And I knew Peter from Jabbed. He was the first person I ever spoke to for Jabbed. Wow. He gave yep. He gave me a lot of his time right back at the beginning. And, um, yeah, he was amazing. And so the ABC said, go for it, and basically backed it. But what I didn't anticipate was having to be in the film. Yeah. So I, I have never been in a film before. I have never narrated a film before. I am much happier behind the scenes. As anybody who knows me will tell you, I hate taking photographs. I hate being on camera. I'm one of those people that hides, you know, um, just because I want to make it about other people, not about me. Um 
But what happened was we went into basically four months of lockdown and I was doing all these interviews on Zoom thinking they were just research interviews, right? Mm. They were just having a chat, getting ready to film because sooner or later I would go out with my proper film and my camera crew and we would do the proper film. And then week after week after week, and even though I got a permit and I could go out, I couldn't go into any lab. I couldn't go yep. into anybody's office. I couldn't go into anybody's home. And honestly, I sat here at this very desk bashing my head going, I'm going to make a film, but I can't. Um, and then I just thought, you know what, just record it all on Zoom. Record everything you can. I've got 200 hours of Zoom. Wow. 60, 60 hours with Peter Doherty. We did every week and then every fortnight, and now we're down to every month or so. Um, and I kept thinking with him, it was kind of a really important record anyway, mm. you know, like other stories he told me and yep. amazing stuff. Um, and then we came out of lockdown towards the end and we went off and my husband and co-producer, Harry, who shoots all my films, we went out and started shooting. And then we started editing. And then when we looked at the material in the edit suite, we realised that actually, even though we'd filmed all the fancy interviews and done all the fancy stuff and it all looked perfect, it wasn't the same as the Zoom. Yeah. And when we made a decision to just oh, be done with it and have Zoom in the film, it became obvious that I'd have to be in the film because I'm really crap at Zoom. And so <laughs> I kept hearing it. And my face is there all the way going, oh, what do you think of this? And tell me about that. And that's how I appeared and ended up in the film because the ABC said you should keep yourself in. And I went, really? Well. And I I found it very, very difficult, to be honest. Well, you know, I hate the sound of my voice when, you know, I hear it on radio as well. So, you know, we're in the same boat there. But look, I think um, it worked out great. I think you, you brought a humanity to the film and a connectivity that was very important. And the voiceover, and as someone who does, you know, a little bit of voice work here and there, the voiceover was great. Um, it really did okay. connect everything up. So well done. Now, I think we should just let people know before we go, Cracking COVID is getting a second airing on the ABC, as uh, you mentioned to me during the break. So it's on, um, is it tonight, 9.30? Tonight, 9.30 on ABC Plus, which is channel 22. Okay. If you're watching digitally, and it's also on iView uh, indefinitely. Yep. And um, and iView indefinitely, and Jabbed is back up on SBS as well. Yes. There was such a demand to have a look at Jabbed that SBS very kindly put that back up on SBS On Demand. So you've got both films available for your pandemic pleasure. Yep, fantastic. Well, folks, I think no uh, long-term listeners of, of mine know I'm pretty judgy when it comes to science films. I bore easily and they usually turn off because I'm so immersed in it all. Um, but this one I sat through and and and, and loved it. And really, uh, I, I suppose, too, because I've interviewed Peter Doherty many times on the show, the connectivity there was beautiful. And just seeing just how much um, has been done in Melbourne and, and Sydney and Queensland with regards to this work on on the virus. And I'd forgotten a lot of it, actually, which was interesting just to hear it again. You you know, we heard at the time in the press releases that I get sent to Triple R, but hearing it again and being refreshed of just how much we did was great. So, Sonia, congratulations on the film. Thanks so much for chatting to us today on Triple R. Um, looking forward to your next uh, project. And, folks, if you have time tonight, 9.30, uh, get on the ABC and have a look on Channel 22. Otherwise, have a look on iView whenever you choose. Sonia, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Shane. <laughs> Folks, that was Sonia Pemberton, the creative director of Gene Pill Productions and the person who has given us this great film, Cracking COVID. Now, we are going to have to uh, hand over to the team from Eat It in just a moment. It has been a you know interesting couple of days. Melbourne, uh, back in lockdown. Sydney is going to be in lockdown for a while. We will have... Um, 
we will have no problem getting through this. I am confident it's going to suck for a while. I don't like telling people that, you know, eh, you'll, you'll be fine. It is going to feel like crap. Uh, we've probably got a few more lockdowns ahead of us before the end of the year until we all get vaccinated. So if you have the opportunity, please do go and get vaccinated as soon as you can. Remember, these things take time to come into play. The doses are weeks apart. So the sooner you do it, the better off you'll be. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.